This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer and we welcomed a whole host of experts to the show for this episode. Kicking off with Dr. Shafali, busting myths from... Ice baths to keto, what you need to know about some of the biggest trends or indeed fads in health and wellness. Talking teeth, especially in the teens, when it comes to train tracks versus Invisalign. It was Renny Sanger from House and House who was trying to convince me to buy off plan. But where should you do it and what are the kind of gains you can make here in the UAE? Plus it was Scott Hutton on hand, property lawyer extraordinaire as we talked damage from the storms, eviction notices, and of course, answering your questions on the text line. Dr. Shafali Verma is here. If you're looking for some no-nonsense advice, whether it is to do with sports medicine, which she is an expert in, she is a general practitioner and an integrative medicine specialist. Now, we are busting myths, taking names today, and maybe calling out... Some of the stuff you might have seen, I feel like, Doctor, there is an awful lot of self-professed wellness experts around on social media. And putting something in your Instagram or TikTok bio is not a qualification. So we're bringing in you, the expert, today. What's been keeping you busy? I mean, really, clinic, uh, teaching, consulting. I mean, I'm doing, it's actually a really busy time of year for me. the beginning of the year always is, isn't it, really, mm-hmm. if you think about it. Like everyone's always on these journeys and New Year resolutions and so on and so forth. And like, you know, February is still early in the year. Happy belated birthday to you as oh, well. Thank you. Wow, on the radio. This is amazing. Happy birthday. <laughs> no. um, Do you make any, any kind of New Year resolutions for the year ahead? Do you know, I try not to now. I think being in my late 40s. Stop um, it. I actually want to be a little bit more consistent. I think that's mm. what the resolution should be like. I think when people start at the end, beginning of the year and they often, it fizzles out, doesn't it? Like yep. mid and then they start again. And you feel rubbish about yourself. Consistency is key. If I say it, I think it's important to practice it, I guess. I think your idea of consistency is probably a little bit elevated compared to others in terms of your very into your fitness, wellness. But, you know, we've talked about before about everything in moderation. Correct. So we were going to debunk some trends today and we're going to go through them kind of one by one. But in terms of origin of trends, I mean, how important is it to look at the science behind these things as a as a person like me, not someone with a doctor in front of their name? I mean, I think that's the one thing that you should be looking at. Is there science to qualify what has been said? Everybody, anyone can be an expert. You know, and right now with social media and, you know, like you said, social media, TikTok, you come across as a an expert because you're on camera. Yeah, because you have a platform. And that's it. And then the more followers you have, you almost feel like a lot of times you buy a lot of followers too. And it almost makes it look like you are famous for something that you have. And I think that's where more of the scientific people are ignoring that. Mm-hmm. And we are being questioned, I think, more than the you know, the influencer, as it were. Yeah, I think it's also in terms of the questions you need to be asking yourself when someone's, you know, positioning something as being amazing, cure-all, quick fix is, are they selling something, whether Mm -hmm. it's themselves or a product or a service? Um, And also this idea of one size does not fit all. No. So we are going to be going through them today. If you've heard something, if you've seen something, if you want to try something, let us know. We're going to get the the doctor's take on everything from keto to ice baths, certain wonder supplements, fasting, huge over the last couple of years. Dr. Shafali with me, Helen Farmer, in the studio until three o'clock. We've had a confused message from Rami saying, can she please talk about apple cider vinegar? My wife has it every morning and I don't understand the quote unquote science behind it. If any, Rami asking all the big questions today. We're here for you, sir. Dr. Shafali Verma is with us today. She's a general practitioner, got a special interest in sports medicine and has worked with you know government games, worked with athletes, worked with mere mortals. She's an integrative medicine specialist. What does that mean, Dr. Chef? So it basically means that as opposed to just curing it's looking at the cause, really. 
is looking at, you know, the pathology over time. I believe disease doesn't happen overnight. Um, so it's like the this, the this, the this, the this, the this, the this, then that. And then everyone's like, doctor, now fix that. But it's not the that. It's the little thises that lead up to the that that I think is important to get rid of it once and for all. So I think we are seeing, and I'm, I'm grateful for it, a lot of people leaning into wellness um, and wanting to make some adjustments, make some, you know, bringing in some activities, a bit of knowledge. So then we see these big fads blow up and ice baths we're going to tackle first. Mm-hmm. Are you a fan? So I think one of the things that you said earlier on in you know the program today, you said, you know, they come... They say these things and it's not that they're lying, but they've also been sold the same thing. So the person has a product, the product is sold to the influencers, the influencers then sell it to everybody else. But they have a responsibility and these influencers often don't necessarily look at the good, bad and ugly. Mm -hmm. They just focus on the good. Or the nuances or variables of everybody. How to sell it, right? And I think... As doctors, we have a responsibility to think about that one person who it's not going to benefit. Mm-hmm. And so looking at the science becomes very important. So I often have people come in and say, oh, I'm you know, dealing with such and such. Are ice baths good for me? And I probably would say it's not good for everybody depending on what they're going through. You know, a change in temperature uh, of that amount not everybody can deal with that stress of it. And it, that's exactly what I wanted to ask you about because I've done ice baths in a few different places and forms here in Dubai and other places. And the good ones, I'm using my fingers, um, my good ones have been people that are super clued up on exactly that, on the stress, on making sure that when you get into freezing water, you are in a state where your body is going to be able to feel better from that stress rather than spiked and accelerated in cortisol. Correct. And this is all to do with the breathing and what you might be doing for half an hour before you even put a toe in. I feel like there's a lot of sharks around who are like, here's a pop of ice bath in your hop, you know. Um, And when I've done the good ones, and the most recent one was with a woman who has been to Wim Hof's house and had that kind of full training. It was incredible. But there's a lot of irresponsible practitioners out there. But also not just about like where you are in that one hour of space around that ice bath. It's also looking at where are you in your life? Like with people who are sort of in that burnout phase and they're trying to do everything to make themselves feel better. Mm -hmm. An ice bath's not going to fix it because it's (laughs) going to be adding to that stress. You mentioned cortisol and there is something to be said about that. That can actually be... You know, the stick that breaks the camel's back. What is the science behind the ice bath? What, are we, what is it purporting to do? And what, it, what can it do under the right circumstances with the right person at the right time? Well, I mean, it, it has a lot to do with, you know, things like your, obviously, muscles and soreness and recovery. Um, but also, like, in terms of quality of sleep. And I think there's an element of sympathetic driving into the parasympathetic. So being able to manage that and have that variability in order for them to actually sleep and immune system and so on and so forth. You know, there is a lot of people who swear by it. People swear by having five minutes of a freezing shower first thing in the morning to wake them up, but to also enhance their immune system and so on. And it could, and it probably does have all those potential positive effects, mm-hmm. but does it work for everybody? No, it's like a, it's, it's like a vaccination. I'm, I'm just going to go run this because I think this is also really important. Vaccinations, there's a lot of bad, you know, press. There's a lot of like good press and so on. The only thing that I say about vaccinations is can your child or your immune system take this vaccine on in that moment? Mm-hmm. So when you go and you take your child and, you know, check your temperature, temperature alone is not sufficient. You know your child. My child's not feeling, they're not, off. They're a little bit off today or they haven't slept. You know what? You delay it, mm-hmm. you know, so that you have the right immune system to have the right immune effect. Like it does not, it's not the right time for everybody anytime and, you know, mm-hmm. at any point. Makes a lot of sense. Um, 
if you've got any questions relating to, well, indeed, any trend that you feel tempted to try, you have tried. I've had a couple of questions about keto, which we're going to come to after half past. Let's ask, let's go to Rami's question saying, can doctor please talk about apple cider vinegar? My wife has it every morning. I don't understand the science behind it, if any. You like a good mind-gut connection chat. We've only got about a minute before we have uh, have some music. What? But it's what, for the gut. It's for the gut. It, it, so there's, there's a lot of uh, chat on the hydrochloric acid being produced uh, by the stomach to help digest. And we keep trying to like almost alkaline it. Uh, but the apple cider vinegar is actually to help the HCL, you know, during eating, as it were, to help digest proteins and stuff like that. Um, and it helps with digestion, you know, breakdown of food. Mm-hmm. Um, I think taking it once a day might not necessarily be sufficient if your bigger meals are lunch and dinner. How much do you be drinking um, of this stuff? But, you know, normally like people would normally put a like a tablespoon or a teaspoon and have it like that. But also I have seen people and it has worked very effectively with a lot of people. A little bit of honey, a little bit of apple cider vinegar in water before bed helps people sleep quality loads. Interesting. Hope that helps, Rami. You've got some science behind it now. Dr. Shvali Verma in the studio. Uh, we've had a message about some supplementation, PMS in your 40s. It's all going on on the show this afternoon. This content is for informational purposes only and does not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Dr. Shafali Verma is with us today. She's a general practitioner. She's an integrative medicine specialist. And we're busting myths, really. And we're in February now, but the big word in January tends to be, I'm going to do a detox. I've had too much cheese. I've been overindulging. I'm going to detox. Um, and there's a whole lot of money to be made in any products that slap the word detox on them. Um, what's your take? Can it be beneficial? And if so, in what forms? Or does our body do all the heavy lifting anyway? I mean, what are we trying to detox? I don't know. The cheese. Right. I mean, <laughs> so it's avoiding cheese. It's not a detox then, is it? Yeah. I think the term detox is actually a medical term. I mean, the body detoxifies through the liver, the kidney. There's phase one, phase two, phase three detoxification. Um, the whole idea is to get toxins, which are normally stored in fat cells, to be converted into a water-soluble product to get rid of the body. Now, detoxing, we use it too easily, that word. Everybody wants to be on a detox. But what they mean is they're not going to do something. So they're restricting something mm. or they're only doing something. But that's not necessarily detoxing the body. In fact, I find some of these quote-unquote Talk, uh, detoxes actually worsen the body. You may feel better for, say, like a fruit and juice detox. You feel better. But are you feeling better because of certain foods that you're avoiding versus it being the fruit and juice that you're having that's making you feel better? If mm-hmm. that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, are you giving your digestive system a break from chewing and munching food? And that's why you feel better. It's not the fruit and juice. It could have been something else, right? It's like asking where, again, where is the science? What are we trying to get rid of the body? You know, I think that's very important to ask those questions when you go several people. I've had recently a patient who came and did an Ayurvedic detox and became really toxic, you know, because we haven't actually opened the channels for true detoxification Mm. and no one's looking at that now a lot of people turning to intermittent fasting recently and it suits an awful lot of people and in total honesty it's not something i follow in terms of it is six o'clock i'm going to stop eating it is 12 o'clock i'm going to start eating but what i've started to realize um is that i'm actually not naturally very hungry in the morning and if i force my and i do this on holiday if i've paid for a hotel where i get a you wake bu- up and go for breakfast because you've paid. Yeah, I've yeah. paid for breakfast. Yeah, I'm going to go to the buffet. And I tend to feel quite ill. So I've started listening to my body yeah. in the sense that I'm actually not really hungry until kind of 10, 10, 30. But people are taking those kind of eating and non-eating windows incredibly seriously. And we had Tia, Tia the gut um, coach um, in recently, and she was talking about how she doesn't believe that intermittent fasting actually suits a lot of women in particular. Correct. It affects their hormones, actually. So can you break it down for us in terms of where the science lies? So, I mean, again, intermittent fasting is eating in a particular window of eating. I don't think people do it well either. So often... The first thing when somebody tells me I'm intermittent fasting, I will ask them exactly their times of when they eat throughout the day and when they stop. And often people will break their fast, not eat again for like 
four, five, six, seven hours, create another fast within their fast, and then eat again. So we eat twice a day. Mm-hmm. And that is very confusing to the body. So first of all, when you break your fast to when you stop eating again later on, I think you need to eat relatively regularly. I try and encourage people to eat sort of their three meals within that time. Women, though, again, it adds stress. And stress then can affect the thyroid. You know, yo-yo dieting in a lot of people affect the, the, you know, the thyroid. Most people who go into an intermittent fasting have tried some form of dieting before. So again, where is your starting level? Where are you in your sort of cycle? Are you close to menopause, perimenopause? Where are you? Sometimes those elements of stress can actually flip you over to the next sort of stage also. You know, if it affects the thyroid, you're you're not going to be able to lose. If you're dropping the calories extensively for a long period of time, where are you going to go from there? Mm. You know, if it stops working, what are you going to do? Drop it more? Mm -hmm. Miss another meal? So again, with intermittent fasting, I think there is something to be said for, you know, a small amount of time, control your eating, control the number of calories, maybe count even your calories, looking at your timing of your eating. But would I do it? Forever? No, I wouldn't. Like with anything. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Well, which brings us on to keto, which we're going to be talking about next. Dr. Shafali Verma in the studio. We've had a couple of anonymous messages as well. So we'll have a quick fire on the text round. This content is for informational purposes only and does not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Dr. Shafali Verma is with us. We've been talking about, well, busting myths and taking names when it comes to wellness. I don't want to point the finger at Gwyneth, but she's doing very well out of all sorts of weird and wonderful practices. A lot of people doing well, really. Well, this is, this is the kind of thing. Wellness is a bit of a privileged area. You know, if, yeah. you, if you can spend hours and thousands on getting, you know, a mental boost or, you know, your body feeling like... Some people are just trying to get out of bed and work to support themselves. Well, I mean, we were talking about something just now. And I think the one, the other thing that's very important, I think, is need to know, nice to know. Mm. And I think that's another thing. We can go down this weird and wonderful pathways of all these new things that are on the market. But like, are you doing the daily common things as best as you can? And often people skip those things. And then do all the other things that look really like nice and beautiful, but not really doing the boring day-to-day mundane stuff that actually makes the best, actually has the best results for the longest time as long as you're consistent at it. Do you know what I mean? I do. Um, I've been a journalist for oh, 20 years now. And it is, it's the boring stuff. It is the, you know, don't want to have lung cancer? Stop smoking. I mean, that's it, right? <laughs> you know, it, really, it really is. And I think, you know, as, as humans, we are designed, we can't help but be attracted to new shiny fixes, gadgets, tech. Da, da, da. I get it. Like, who, who wouldn't? But when it comes to moderation, good sleep, hydration, breathing. I mean, that, that those are my eight daily multipliers from a previous show, right? The pillars. Like, those are the pillars. But also, I think for... You know, now I think making money is so difficult uh, when you live in like, you know, countries like this where things are expensive that people are often looking for their USP. How can I be different? How can I be different? And then that's where the whole commercial aspect of, you know, becoming an influencer and like, you know, having that is because everybody's trying to make it ultimately. Yeah, it's true. We've just been talking about intermittent fasting there. Um, and a message here. I don't know if this is a man or a woman, by the way, anonymous message saying, can fasting in Ramadan be considered intermittent fasting? And what should I do to ensure I reap full benefits? We will definitely have you on during Ramadan talk about this in, in general, but I think that's a really pertinent question. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is an element of intermittent fasting because you te- technically break your fast uh, and then you eat for a small amount of time and then you're fasting again. So technically, yes, it is. And, you know, what is it from like seven till maybe 4.35, like, you know, so it is a relatively short window of eating. Um, I think the wh- what I often tell people, and I think maybe a show would be good so we can go in detail, but it's it's the things that I think that you need to still kind of do well during that time. It is like hydrate, right? Like you're not 
able to drink at all during that time. So when you break your fast, the electrolytes go in the water so that you're able to like, you know, you know, things like constipation and, you know, kidney uh, stones are quite common during that time because of the level of dehydration that happened over a month Mm -hmm. of fasting. So I always encourage people to have electrolytes. I always actually have people have their green drinks to alkalize and decrease risk of developing kidney stones during that time. Um, And then follow a pattern of nutrients as if, you know, so you obviously, if you wake up for sahur, then that's like your morning. And, you know, iftar is your whatever lunch and then dinner, depending on how you do it, put your nutrients the same sort of, you know, way as if you would be during normal daytime hours, you know, and then that way you're able to regulate as best as you can during that month. And we'll definitely talk about exercise during that time as well when you come on because, you know, it's really crucial. Um, we've got a very quick question, which is basically saying, I've been doing keto and 16 8 uh, fasting for 15 days and I feel like garbage. Uh, switching between constipation and diarrhea. I've lost five kilos, um, so which is, which is amazing. But how long will it take me to get used to this? But I mean, is the five kilos lost because of your diarrhea? Probably. <laughs> I mean... Dehydration. Dehydration. I, look, I think that 15 days of suffering is probably giving you some reason to think this may not be working for you. Your body's trying to tell you something. Yeah, and I think, look, keto, a real ketogenic diet, which has a fat percentage, so 70% of your diet should be fat, um, is not good for everybody. Mm -hmm. Not everybody is a good fat oxidizer. And I often, if people are choosing to do like something like keto, I get them to do their bloods at the beginning and six to eight weeks later to see what happens to their, you know, cholesterol levels because sometimes we see it ramp up massively and they don't lose weight because they're Mm -hmm. just not able to oxidize your fat. Not a good fat oxidizer. Is that what you are? I'm going to put it in my Instagram bio. (laughs) (laughs) And Dr. Shafali Vema, thank you so much. You're most welcome. Um, And we'll catch up in a a month's time. Yeah. When we're in, in Ramadan and we can Sounds help our people there. good. Thank you so much. Dr. Shivali, friend of the show, integrative medical expert on hand. This content is for informational purposes only. If you would like to seek medical treatment, please contact a certified healthcare provider for personalized advice and diagnosis. quite self-conscious i'm hiding my mouth behind the microphone because we've got an expert dentist in the studio dr hakim is with us today american board certified orthodontist expert in invisalign consultant orthodontist at the same day clinic um and also we can talk some new research you've been working on to a white paper that talks about this ever-evolving clear aligner market in the region which we're going to come to next first of all how are you dr hakim I'm very uh, fine, Helen. Thank you for having me on the show. Pleasure. We are talking about younger ones. Your patient age range goes from 6 to 76. So, But we're looking now at the kind of preteen teen and I guess some of the corrective and orthodontic work. Have we seen, I say this expecting a yes, because of social media, a bit of an explosion in this area of aesthetics and corrective work? Yes, we have. Uh, People are more aware uh, I think the selfie heralded in a new age where people want to have a very nice smile and now there are multiple ways of achieving this and Invisalign being one. Tell us a little bit about the white paper, the research that you are compiling for this region in particular, which I think is actually interesting when you think about all the you know diverse nationalities and, and ages and stages. What did it tell you about the Invisalign system here? Well, the, the white paper was primarily fun, uh, focusing on the uh, the perceptions of parents for their children to getting a line of treatment. And uh, obviously it was uh, very good findings showing the barriers that parents have erected to uh, prevent their children from having aligners in, in the uh, thinking that braces or, you know, the traditional brackets and wires are more effective, which is no, not the case. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you in terms of how do you, as consultant orthodontist, look at a child, and we're talking children really before we get, even get into mm. teens, and think this is going to be the correct treatment plan. What makes a good candidate for each method? Well, first of all, what is the reason that the child is there or what is the prevent- what's the prevailing concern? And based on this, then we can formulate treatment plans. Um, in the preteen age group, there is a misconception out there that we should wait 
uh, perhaps when the child is 12 or when all the permanent teeth have erupted. Mm. And this is actually a fallacy. This is not the case. Uh, we have children who uh, are unhappy with the way the teeth look. Unfortunately, bullying happens. Uh, additionally, additionally, we have some children whose teeth are in a position that increases the risk of damage due to trauma. Uh, you're on, if you do school drops, you might find some children who are unable to bring their lips together at rest. You know, mm-hmm. so, so, so this is something that's there. And then finally, there are things that affect normal growth and development like habits, uh, like uh, uh, breathing anomalies. Now, this is a big area that, that's getting looked into. So these are for the preteens. And then based on what the concern is, we provide a, a, a customized option to address that. Dr. Hakeem with us today. What about that, you know, kind of, and I, I asked this because my, my daughter's nine and she's got friends in her year group, you know, the year above who've had, you know, the, the braces, the wire. And I, I must confess, I was like, oh, that is a bit young because... When they come off, I guess my worry would be if that mouth is still growing, if the teeth are still coming in. What's the danger of undoing all that hard work and indeed spend? Fantastic. We already, you already divided it very nicely. You mentioned preteens and you mentioned obviously teens and adolescents. In the preteen group, there has to be a specific uh, cause or a justification, I call it for intervention. Mm-hmm. We go in, we fix it, and then we, we observe until the child develops and all the teeth, the permanent teeth have come in. So in that age group, we anticipate some movement to happen. However, in the adolescence, we, we obviously give retainers at the end of it to help hold everything in place. Dr. Hakeem with us today, consultant orthodontist at Same Day Clinic there on Beach Road. We've had questions about costs of both, timelines of both, which I think is a really interesting one. Dr. Hakeem with us today, consultant orthodontist at Same Day Clinic. We are talking braces in that preteen and teen market as well. We're going to bust some myths. We've got loads of questions coming in for you, doctor. Um, Can we talk about timeline, I guess, of those kind of traditional, what I grew up calling train track braces versus Invisalign? Because message here saying, is it true that Invisalign is recommended for less severe malalignment? So can we talk about that and then the timeline? Sure. The, uh, The timeline is really related to biology. So, you know, any force that's applied to a tooth, uh, the teeth will react. And whether it's bioliners or brackets and wires, it's, it, you know, it's, it's a biological process. Um, what we found is that there are some instances where with aligners, the cases can resolve themselves even slightly quicker mm-hmm. than, than with braces. Because ultimately, it's about compliance. So with aligners, if you're not wearing the aligner, the aligners are not working. Don't look at me like that. I'm trying my best. I just don't wear them in the afternoon when I'm talking. But, <laughs> so I'm doing Invisalign. It's taken a bit longer than I thought because I'm not that compliant. Uh, but once again, if you are with Invisalign during the whole process, you look the same. There are no dietary restrictions and you have uh, full access to uh, cleaning your teeth. Mm-hmm. Whereas with braces, if we're not compliant, then we're obviously going to be restricted in those three areas. So once again, and since we are dealing with, with growth in the, uh, in the teen and the preteen uh, age group, um, if, we, if we achieve the, the justification early on, then there is no harm in prolonging the treatment to help with maintenance. Mm-hmm. So once again, the whole paradigm shifts because now, you know, once we put the if you put once we put the braces on, the patients are asking, "When am I getting them off? When am I getting them off?" Whereas with aligners, they can get them off whenever they want to eat or whenever they want to clean their teeth. I just think with kids, I don't know. I'm not sure I would trust my nine year old to be brushing the Invisalign and you know da 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 da. Does that is a maturity thing come into play sometimes? It, it, it does, but again, I think that's one of those myths that, that we, we, we find is that the most compliant age group is actually the, the teen group. We have children who uh, play musical instruments. We have children who uh, act in the school uh, you know, theater group. Uh, we have children who play sports. So all of those would be more inclined to be compliant. Mm-hmm. And if, if you can put it on par with eyeglasses. You yeah, know, good point. Um, children, you know, they, they wear eyeglasses. So, so again, it's, it's, it's all there. And in my practice, uh, to reassure the parents, uh, because my fees are the same for fixed appliances and aligners, uh, I tell them that if, if the child is non-compliant with aligners, they keep losing them, I will downgrade them to silver braces at no extra cost. 
And in my 18 years of providing Invisalign service, I've done that three times. So it's, uh, it's not bad. Yeah, it's not bad. Um, we've had a message here from Tutu saying, my 13-year-old got braces about a month ago, followed all the advice about cleaning teeth, and the dentist recently said there's a plaque buildup and to quote-unquote brush better. Can your dentist offer advice? Should I book her in for an oral hygiene appointment? She's trying her best, spends ages cleaning them, and feels like she's let the dentist down. Well, that, yeah, that's very unfortunate to hear. Uh, I think another con- uh, misconception is that if you're seeing an orthodontist, it's very important that you continue seeing your general dentist. So uh, the the regular cleanings have to continue during orthodontic treatment. But perhaps uh, she could use uh, something called a plaque disclosing tablet, and this will actually stain all the plaque on the teeth. Uh, and it's a fantastic tool. And then that way uh, you can you can f- focus more on the areas where there is plaque buildup. Target. Hope that helps too, too. Um, uh, I'm going to summarise a few questions we've had in one go, which is when should you see an orthodontist? So how early should parents be considering an expert such as yourself to treat their child, Dr. Hakeem? Sure. The... Um we should see the children, as, as the American Association of Orthodontists recommends, around the age of seven, because this is an age in which the permanent teeth should have started to erupt or emerge in, in, in the child's mouth. Um, it does not mean that treatment will be done at that time, because in the preteen group, we really have to have a justification. Mm-hmm. Two children can come in, or two siblings. One is more concerned the other is not presenting with the same findings. You may treat the one that is concerned and not the other and wait. So, so, so it's very customized. And again, to address a couple of messages, would you go and see an orthodontist direct or would you need a referral from your general dentist? I would always recommend that you do have a dentist because I would not start any patient unless they were cleared by the dentist. Mm-hmm. So having no cavities, having good oral hygiene is a prerequisite to starting treatment. So I think it's very important to have that. Um, and I guess that's, isn't it, that's that kind of process, knowing mm. the timeline, knowing what's in store, being able to budget for it and all, of, and all of that. What do you think we're going to be talking about in five years' time when it comes to orthodontics? What's happening in the industry or behind the scenes that we as patients might not know about that you're excited about, Dr. Hakeem? Well, the, the uh, increased uh, digitization, increased utilization of technology. I think now we are able to, uh, to treat patients more remotely. I have patients as far as Cameroon, Afghanistan, Germany. So these are things that, you know, 10 years ago were unthinkable. So I think it's very exciting. And our ability now to track the progress of patients remotely using uh, tools like uh, virtual monitoring and and, and digital monitoring are incredible. Well, thank you so much for coming in, breaking it down. As I said, a number of messages um, asking for your details. Um, so if you want to send me the word, I don't know, send me the word teeth. We'll make it easy. Send me a tooth emoji. Um, and with your permission, Dr. Hakeem, I'll share your details from Same Day Clinic. Would that be OK? That'll be fine. Thank, thank you. you so, so much. Absolute pleasure. We have been talking Invisalign, braces. Dr. Hakeem with us today, a consultant orthodontist at the Same Day Clinic. This content is for informational purposes only and is not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. This is Afternoons with Helen Farmer on Dubai Eye 103.8. With House and House, 10 years of unlocking opportunities in Dubai real estate. We are hooking you up with the insider experts this hour. Renny Sanger is with us today, super experienced off-plant sales manager. And I guess my challenge to you is this, sir. I get a bit freaked out when it comes to off-plan. If, yep. I, if, I, if I put up your microphone sure. and I promise to shut up for 30 seconds, <laughs> do you want to tell me why, why, why I should change should my mind? Yeah. Um, too many different reasons. Uh, first and foremost, you get the pick of the bunch in terms of inventory. So rather than being at the mercy of the secondary market now, what's available, paying premiums, you get to get in early doors. But as a byproduct, you get capital appreciation because you're buying something that is infancy in terms of the price point. It would naturally mature during the course of construction. You have the ease of payment plans, so not having to put all your money in in one go, whether you're taking a mortgage or have, well, putting all your cash in, so to speak. Um, and you get something brand new in a nice community. 
okay, where am I buying? Where's Ooh, hot? Where, that, that's a good question. Where's hot right now when it comes to off-plan? There are many different launches. As you know, Dubai is never short of options for launches. I think the most exciting ones in recent times, I know you visited it firsthand, but Expo being a really, really big one for this year. It was so impressive. It is absolutely stunning, isn't it? It really, really was. I loved Expo 2020. Right. We love broadcasting from it. I think it's really interesting to see how that area is evolving um, sure. and you know how many companies are going to be putting you know their offices in there yep, yep. how much is opening up in terms of Dubai South and the focus of the city I guess having a bit of a shift towards that Definitely. end but the build quality was really really impressive. I'm glad you said that because I think for a lot of people and I was there on Saturday as well for a lot of people maybe have heard the noise whereas in today's market where the launch has kind of come very thick and fast and it you probably heard the stories, projects get launched on the day and is sold out same day. The overnight queues. Yes, exactly, right? Which we've seen, again, some, we won't mention we the developers, but we've seen some more recently. And I think now buyers are kind of almost feeling antagonized that they don't get to see, they barely see floor plans before they've been asked to put in an expression of interest. Mm-hmm. There's very few kind of show homes to kind of speak to what that quality is going to look like, whereas Expo have reverse engineered the whole process where they're saying, here's the show home, Here's the infrastructure. We've got it all there in abundance. The last piece of the puzzle is almost the residents themselves, which is very, very rare. We don't and, see it. And it's, it's really a kind of a testament to the vision of that part of town. Absolutely. So, Rani Sanger with us today from House and House. We've got a few questions for you about buying off plan, but I'm going to sure. be piping up as a bit of devil's advocate. <laughs> okay. Now, before moving to Dubai, I'd always lived in kind of older properties, like sure. you kind of, you know, I don't know, like had a fireplace type properties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the thought of buying something super new or even something that doesn't isn't in existence really freaks me out. Yeah. I like to be able to be like, there's a wall. I could put a picture yeah, on yeah. that wall. Do you know I get it. Yeah, something tangible. Something right? tangible. Yeah. Exactly. So I guess what are some of the questions you should be asking as a would-be off-plan buyer? You know, how important is that big developer name or can you get a better bargain with someone who's, you know, newer to the market? What does your it's, kind of sense a, check say? It's a great it's a great question and we get it all the time. And to be honest with you, it, it almost blows my mind that people probably don't ask it enough. To be honest with you, the big name developers definitely are, they're worth their weight in gold. And I think if you're buying essentially sand in the desert, excuse the pun, right? So you kind of really want to know, who am I investing with? Safe Is this, Exactly, safe fans, right? So when we talk about the safe fans, we're talking about big semi-government developers or like Expo, a completely government-owned entity. Now, that's not discrediting some of the boutique developers who've done you know, a tremendous job, built themselves a really great reputation. And I guess, arguably, you can say eventually someone had to start off somewhere, which you know definitely is the case. But it's, again, some of these boutique developers are backed by people who've worked at some of the bigger developers who've got a long-standing history behind them, which fills you with confidence as a buyer. But it is something you do need to look at. Who's the man behind it? What have they done? What are their plans looking like? If they're looking to build an entire master community by the completion date, is that realistic? You know, some of these questions buyers should be asking themselves. But again, we as consultants would ask those questions on your behalf or, mm. or dare I say, not even present you options that we ourselves Until you were satisfied. Exactly that. Okay. Exactly that yeah. um, question here from Alex saying, can you please explain the payment plans and when you can exit? This will no doubt vary between developer and You're development. absolutely right. Okay. Yeah, exactly that. Is there a best one, like an optimum one? So, I mean, I guess a lot of our European counterparts will probably be a little bit more familiar with paying less during the course of construction and the heavy amount on completion. And there are definitely some payment plans like that in the market. Um, but then the kind of phrase, you know, not everything that glitters is gold or, you know, something sounding too good to be true mm-hmm. usually is kind of comes into play. Whereas some of the bigger developers like your EMAR and perhaps even Miras for the one of, well, maybe a couple of others as well, they are asking for a bigger payment during the course of construction, albeit they are kind of more spaced out. Now, for some cultures around the world, they prefer that option. I think from a UK sort of mindset or uh, certainly Europe, we tend to look at the payment plans which are maybe 30, 70, 40, 60 with a large amount being paid on completion means we have less risk exposure, so to speak, during the course of construction. But to answer your question, when could you exit? That is like a clause, like an NLC you'd apply for from developer to developer. Um, you could say the average is circa 30 to 40 percent, mm-hmm. EMR being 50, some others being 30, but you'll be within that range. 
Hope that helps Alex Renny Sanger in the studio from House and House Off Plan Sales Manager. He mentioned Expo City there. I'm curious where else is on the hot list. We've also had a message saying, uh, would you recommend apartments over villas or vice versa? Um, so we're going to go to the text line next. This is Afternoons with Helen Farmer on Dubai Eye 103.8. With House and House, 10 years of unlocking opportunities in Dubai real estate. And joining us now, off-plan sales manager, Rennie Sanger, is with us today as we do talk about buying off-plan. We've had a few questions we're going to get to. Um, sure. You touched on earlier about Expo City being a really hot pick when it comes to off-plan. Any yeah. other areas that you think are, are worth highlighting, especially when we think about, well, you know, bit of bang for your buck, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's quite a few different areas. I mean, I think it depends, like, with most things, how much you, someone wants to spend. But another really hot community at the moment, albeit maybe not for everybody's budget, but for, like, a family community, the Acres by Miras in Dubai land has done tremendously well. Um, again, really embracing um, Sheikh Mohammed's vision for 2040, being, you know, very green, mm-hmm. lots of open spaces, lots of different elements. Lagoons, as most people know, is very kind of on trend at the moment. And sure enough, it has one. But it also has so many other different elements to it that make it a really kind of family-friendly community within not too far out, right? Kind of position between Arabian Ranches, which is a big firm favourite of many people in Dubai, mm-hmm. and uh, Arabian Ranches too. So it's, it's a great location. Can I ask then, in, in respect to your your client base, are people sure. buying, for, for those situations, I would, would imagine most people are buying that to maybe live in it themselves. Correct. What kind of split are we seeing between investors and kind of owner-occupiers? So I think for off-plan, largely a lot of people have kind of looked at that market as being very speculative sort of investors, so to speak, but we're seeing a lot more end users doing it now more than ever before. Mm-hmm. And I think it's something you maybe touched on earlier on with the secondary market being um, you're paying such a big premium these days for you know somebody else's taste. Again, going back to areas like Arabian Ranches One or, or Emirates Living, where these are 20, 25-year-old kind of communities, so to speak, where someone's renovated them and you as a new buyer coming in... Renovate them again. <laughs> exactly. You're either doing it again or you're paying for somebody else's taste. So um, it's being able to go in, buy something brand new with the ease of a payment plan, brand new community with all the amenities that match up to it. Um, No name on this message saying... should you consider villas, townhouses over apartments? What, how much, how much of each is being built? I know you haven't got a read of the whole area. I can give you the launches for last year. So, yeah. in terms of the stats for last year, in terms of the, at least the launches, apartments represented eighty-seven percent of the market. Huge townhouses being eleven percent, and villas only representing one percent. So, standalone villas, so to speak. Um, so again, if you kind of you can manipulate these numbers however you wish, but I think it does definitely show there's certainly a shortage for these townhouses and villa options in the market, which again is the reason why they've moves very very quickly when they do become available. Mm, that scarcity factor, interesting. Yeah. Okay, Sean says, what about buying land and building something yourself? It's a great option if you can find land. Now, land is uh, very precious here in Dubai, and I think. There's two ways of looking at it. Most of the time, when you're, majority of the time at least, when you're acquiring land, you're often in areas that are maybe not a master community, so to speak. So then the facade can often be different from one property to another. So if you like the whole uniformed sort of look amongst a lot of these popular villa communities that we see now, you don't always have that. Mm-hmm. Um, the developer may set out some different facades that you'd have to build in line with what already there, what's already there, sorry. But that often is in master communities like Dubai Hills and areas where you've got a big master developer who's going to set out maybe two or three different design options. But if, for example, you're buying in areas like Jumeirah Village Triangle or Jumeirah Village Circle or some of these other areas, even Maidan, you're almost left to your own demise, which is great. You can get the size and the floor print perhaps you want, but kind of like a lot of areas in Jumeirah, it is, you know, one big G plus four, G mm-hmm. plus five sort and of building a- or, or an empty plot for that matter. So you lose and that. Presumably you'll be in competition with developers for plots of land as well. For sure. Okay. For sure. Good question though, Sean. If anyone's in a, a self-build in Dubai, I'd love to hear from you. 4001, please. Um, Suraj is saying, I know the property law hour is coming up. But what is responsibility of estate agents when it comes to selling something that never comes to fruition or changes drastically during the construction process? Interesting. It is a great question. I mean, to be honest with you, the it always almost really lies, well, it's, it's the agent and the agency that you probably appoint as your broker in the first place, which will kind of almost 
guide you along the right option in the first place. Now, yes, nobody has the benefit of foresight or crystal ball, for want of a better phrase, but you know, we certainly as an agency and certainly myself, I only recommend options of developers who've got a proven track record, who we can see they've done you know, three, four, five different options before, or if they are doing it for the first time, we scrutinize their credentials from the get-go where we can say, at least if we are even going to take the punt, it's not like a 90-10 payment plan. You know, the, the bigger lump sum is on the receiving end when you actually get the property, so your exposure is minimal. Makes but sense. we don't have an obligation, so to speak. That's probably the agent and the agency's conscience. Makes sense. Randy, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure, thank you. Um, with your permission, if people want to send me the word house, can I share your details from the website? I'd love that. We also have a podcast called Unlocking Opportunities where some of these questions you raised are actually tackled with myself and Managing Director Simon Baker. So please tune in. There you go. Randy Sanger, really appreciate it. Off-plan sales manager at House & House. <laughs> Mr. Popular is in the studio. Scott Hutton is the Head of Construction and Real Estate at BLK Partners. It is your property law clinic. Oof. We've had a lot of messages for you. Can I ask you, aside from 4001 and my social media messages, what's keeping you busy right now? Uh, hi again, Helen. Always good to be here. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Um, a lot's going on at the moment. One's come up recently for me, like usual rental disputes. Everyone's always talking about them. I suspect it'll be what most of our questions are about. But an interesting one I've been dealing with recently, water villas. Water villas, as in... Title to a water villa. Oh, that's interesting. It is. So <laughs> do, you, do you own the sand and the water underneath them? Well, quite, you know, and there's no clear law on it at the moment. And this is not necessarily just Dubai issues. But in Dubai, we have some floating villas, right? So they're not villas. You're not buying... A property is searching in a boat. But, yeah, are you buying a boat? Essentially, yeah, with a mooring. Um, whereas a water villa, you're built on stilts, on foundations. In the foreshore, how does the ownership of that work? How does uh, it work? We're we, working out. Fr- frankly, we don't know at the moment. <laughs> well, I, I certainly don't. So if any of your callers know, give me a call. Um, Scott, last time you came in, you were talking about there could well be an update on the eviction notice passing when a property is sold. So let's say, for example, I own a villa, you're the tenant, I give you notice on it. And then the next person takes over the ownership. And would that tenant then get served another 12 months notice? Has there been any update on that? No real update as such, but I think we're a step further forward in accepting that the 12-month notice does transfer with the property. Okay. Scott Hutton with us today. As we said, we can help with buying, selling, tenancy, landlords, deposits. I wanted to ask you, and I thought of you in the rains uh, last week. I was like, oof, seeing on social media an awful lot of ceilings coming in and really heartbreaking damage actually to, to, to property and to homes. As a tenant, where does responsibility lie for repairs and even damage to property if you are living in a villa that perhaps is not fit for purpose in those circumstances? As a tenant, it's relatively straightforward. Landlord's responsible for maintenance, unless you've agreed otherwise. You can agree in your contract, whatever you like, frankly, but starting point is the landlord is always responsible. And look, fit for purpose here, all of our (laughs) villas and apartments, they leak, right? But it's, it's a feature of where we live. You know, it gets so hot and cools down drastically. Rubber seals around windows inevitably take weather damage. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess they should be being replaced on a semi-regular, semi-regular basis. But look, if you're anything like us, you just accept that you're going to have puddles every now and then. Yes, get, get the old towels out. Yep. Um, what about having insurance then as a, as a tenant? Yeah, well, it's always a good idea. Um, tenants are encouraged to have contents insurance but all you are insuring is your contents the things you own within the property mm. um, they won't be covered by landlords property insurance we're going to go to the text line next scott hutton with us in the studio it's your property law clinic we've had messages about apartment bathroom flooding due to leakage from the one above we've had one about buying the secondary market in rack and trying to change some details We've had we've had a lot. Um, no name asking. Does Scott think the rear calculator needs to be updated to be reflective of the current property prices? I don't know, but I'm going to put it to him next. Dubai Eye one hundred three point eight presents an array of independent expert opinions and does not advise one particular view.
Always seek independent legal advice which considers your own personal circumstances. He's the Head of Construction and Real Estate at BLK Partners, taking my questions, but most importantly yours. Now, I've had a few anonymous messages here. Uh, Scott, one saying, my apartment bathroom is flooded due to leakage from the one above. The owner of the apartment above isn't responding and the tenant doesn't let the maintenance access to check. Neither does the property developer. Help. Ouch. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definite help. Um, What I would probably be doing there if you can't get, if you're not getting anywhere with the existing options, which are the right options, going to the tenant or the, the management company as a starting point, get yourself into the RDC with an emergency application seeking access to their property. And the RDC should be allowed or should be able to authorise the police to enter with you if required. Okay. Really hope that gets sorted. Because that's an emergency. It is an emergency. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've seen messages about, you know, AC's not working, about living without hot water for a long time. So it's really interesting to think that the RDC is there and that an emergency capacity as well, Scott. Uh, no Name says, does Scott think the rear calculator needs to be updated to be reflective of the current property prices? I'm guessing this is from a landlord. Uh, so I'm going to say no. <laughs> but realistically, yeah, the calculator always needs to be updated. It's, but by its, almost by its definition, the way it's structured, it's always going to be out of date very quickly. Mm-hmm. We now have the option where a landlord can get a valuation certificate to replace the market rent. So there are options and it's, it's just a feature of the market. It's always going to be out of date. No name on this message saying, um, I'm a new landlord and the previous landlord has provided an eviction notice. I assume that eviction will just transfer. Do I need to reapply the eviction since I am new or will the previously served one with the mentioned dates be applicable? It's just what we were talking about. Yeah. Um, and they know what, or you know what they say about assumptions to assume makes. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, so we can assume nothing here. Uh, but like we were saying, I... I'm pretty confident. And if it was a friend of mine, I'd be saying, stick with the notice you've got. It should be fine. You should be able to evict on the basis of that existing notice. Okay. Really hope that helps and congratulations. Um, Alia is saying, um, can you please explain exactly how you take a landlord to rear it? Fees, timeline, etc. Ours are trying to put the rent up by 40%. No, thank you. That's from Alia. And I think that's a really good point because we do, you know, we talk about you know, the different you know, bodies that are there to support you. Um, but the, the hows and the how much is, I think, is, is kind of useful to demystify. Now, I will say, my hairdresser told me last week that she's taken her landlord to Rira and she says it's been a very positive experience so far. <laughs> so what, 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 from the legal point of view, does Alia need to know? Well, I'm pleased to hear that. And I personally think the RDC system works pretty well. In terms of costs, it is the, the fees with the RDC is 3.5% of the rent value up to a maximum of 20,000 dirhams. So 20,000 dirhams will be your maximum RDC costs. On top of that, you may have legal costs. You don't have to use a lawyer, so you don't have to go down that route. Um, In terms of timelines, the RDC aims to complete all cases within 75 days, and that's through a second level of appeal as well. My experience is a little bit longer than that, um, but it's generally pretty efficient with those fees though scott and let's say that it, it is alia you know taking her landlord to rira she's paying out that money is that then refunded or a portion of it paid back that is recoverable so if you're successful you should also recover your costs you won't recover any legal fees or maybe a very small portion but you should get your costs back. So the court costs, you should get back. Okay, Alia, great question. I really hope everything's all right. We've had a message from our leaky bathroom victim saying thanks a ton. Um, All the very best at RDC. Scott Hutton with us in the studio today. We are going to be going to the text line. I've had a couple of quite involved messages that we're going to be trying to work through um, regarding being... Well, Emirates auctions regarding, oh my goodness, Scott, I don't know how you do this. My head's just falling off reading these messages. So we are going to be helping out as many people as possible on the property law front between now and five o'clock. Dubai Eye 103.8 presents an array of independent expert opinions and does not advise one particular view. Always seek independent legal advice, which considers your own personal circumstances. Scott Hudden is in the studio, the Head of Construction and Real Estate at BLK Partners. Right, 
I'm going to try and compose myself, Scott, <laughs> to read through the stress that some people are living through right now. Um, please, please, please be quick if you do have a message for Scott, because we've had a couple of pretty hefty stories that we're going to be helping out with. Right. Let's start with this one saying we've been tenants in a villa here in Dubai for three years, have an existing rent agreement that's going to be expiring in July 2024 when we're planning to move out of the house. But recently, out of the blue, we had a visit from supposedly. Supposedly, I think I said this wrong. A representative from Emirates. <laughs> I didn't sleep very well last night. Apparently, a representative for Emirates Auction stating Dubai courts had ruled our rented villa is to be auctioned off due to a dispute with one of the two owners. The representative wanted to stick an Emirates Auction sticker on the outside of the villa, take pictures inside and outside, inspect the Ajari certificate. We refused to allow any of the above as the individual only showed us an Arabic letter from Dubai courts. We don't read or speak Arabic. And he couldn't properly articulate why he needed access or why he wanted us to comply. So we kept refusing. He said he'd come back. What are our rights in te- as tenants in a case like this? What if the representative from the court said was true? Um, could this be some sort of scam? We did take photos of the court documents and the staff badge, but we're unsure what to do. We've escalated at the owners, but we're yet to get a response. Feeling really nervous about our legal rights as tenants and whether we can risk getting thrown out of the house, even though we do have a valid ajari. Any help or advice would be greatly appreciated. Okay, first, I've literally just written down a jarry question mark. So they've confirmed they have an ajari, so security of tenure there for a tenant, that should be relatively secure. And that ajari certificate allows you to sit tight um, any... So if the property is auctioned and sold, that buyer buys it subject to a lease. Mm-hmm. The tenant is still entitled to see out that lease period, so should be pretty secure. Could it be a scam? Uh, I'm not au fait with all the scams going on. There's certainly plenty of them. Anything's um, possible. Yeah. But you should be seeing appropriate documentation in each case and you're entitled to ask for it in a language you can understand. So was she right then to say you can't come in and take pictures? Yes, I wouldn't allow someone to come in and take pictures of my house, um, my own family goods, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um but you run the risk of them turning up with the police the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, but hey, but if, so be it. So be it exactly. Yeah. If that's if that's the process, and you get the reassurance that this this is legit, and this is you know what needs to unfold in order for people to get the answers that they need, fine. Yep. But as you say, if you've got that valid jury certificate, which you do, you should be protected. Yep, absolutely. And if they want to view the property for the purposes of selling, whether that's mm-hmm. by auction or any other way, they can go to the RDC and get something confirming that, which they then show to you and you allow them access on given days. Okay, really hope that helps. It does sound massively stressful, but it sounds like you've done the right thing and actually the law is on your side, so fear not. Um, Speaking of scams, I'm not saying this is, but it's just interesting to think about what is unfolding. I'm the owner of apartments in um, Dubai South, near Expo. I've been receiving calls every day from different companies offering to buy the apartment. Is there a reason why this is happening? (laughs) Well, you know, when you... Every shop you go to when they ask for your mobile phone number. That. Uh, <laughs> You're on a list, my friend. Yeah, um, and we all are. I get it. Um, what I've represented clients in sales or in purchases, they're then phoning me. And that's not my property. I'm not even listed on there. You just, yeah. Can you get block? Can you get blocked? Can you block these numbers? I don't know. Don't know. It's got to be a way. Um, so it doesn't sound like anything. You know, People, people talk. You'll be on some database. It's a annoying, it's a, though. It's, yeah, it's a frustration. Um, and just you know, I I always take the calls. I, I think I'm a nice guy. You're always going to end up having a bit of a conversation. <laughs> How's your mum? I've wasted, <laughs> I've wasted a, half my day. Go for a coffee. Um, right. No name on this message saying um, this relates to Ras Al We bought a property seven years ago from the secondary market. Got all the required documents. NOC, clearance from developer, floor and site plan, title deed in our company name. Now we wish to change the ownership to our personal name. So we got the requirement documents, but on proceeding for the title deed, um, Rack Municipality have informed us that the developer, without notification or informing us, has five years ago changed the site plan to include X square foot on paper and demanding 50,000 dirhams in charges. There's been no change in our plot or home. Can the developer do this? Is it legit? What are our options? My application was rejected, so we have no title deed. Well, that's one of these ones where yeah, I don't know is the honest answer. I'd have to have a look at the contract. Um, and usual disclaimers apply, right? You know, it's not, Don't take this as gospel legal advice. Um, it's general advice. 
But have a look at your contract, see what it says there. Um, it sounds like it's an off, I'm assuming it's an off-plan purchase. Um, property's not complete yet, so we're subject to the terms of the contract. You need to check the contract, see what it says. Often these contracts include provisions allowing the developers to charge more. People miss it when they're buying. They don't read their contract. So you know, the, the advice is read your contract. And if there's anything particular, feel free to give me a buzz on that. All right. Scott Hutton in the studio there. Up next, we've had a message saying, landlord selling the house we live in, he's got a buyer and uh, they want us out. What's a realistic figure? What should I be asking for? Hmm, sounds like the power is in your in your hand, my listener friend. Uh, what would Scott Hutton be asking for? We'll find out. Dubai I 103.8 presents an array of independent expert opinions and does not advise one particular view. Always seek independent legal advice, which considers your own personal circumstances. Scott Hutton is in the studio just for a few more minutes. We're going to help out as many people as we can. It's a bit of a quick fire round. Scott is the head of construction and real estate at BLK Partners. Right, you ready? Go. Are you sure? Okay, no name on this one saying March 2022. Uh, Rented a villa in a compound, received the Ajari. Uh, 2023 renewed. Landlord said issue with his rear account, so he couldn't issue an Ajari. Would be in a few weeks. Dragged on. In August, we went to rear it, do it ourselves, but told case against the landlord so he was blocked. September, October. Property repossessed by the bank and put up on Emirates auction. Sold in December. The new landlord sent a court order in early January. We had no Ajari. We needed to vacate within a week. Went to Rira, didn't offer, deposit case and won. Dubai Court came back and stuck an order on our door saying we need to be out in a week, three weeks ago. We went to Dubai Court, they said our names and villa number on, are not on the order, we can't file anything against it, and they themselves are unsure. The new landlord's rep constantly harassing, saying we need to leave, pay back rent from December. We've paid the old landlord until the end of March. He's now stopped garbage collection. 12 villas, 11 with expired ajaris, but valid rental contracts. One villa just sent a legal eviction notice. We have received nothing. Can he just evict us via Dubai courts or does he need to abide by RERA? We've paid until the end of March, others until until July and October. Proof of payment. Can he make us pay back? Does he not have to give us a year's notice? Is our tenancy agreement not valid? We've been to so many different people getting multiple answers. The new landlord's rep has been quiet for a while, so I know he's planning something. One villa's moved out due to stress. There are young families there. No one's arguing about moving, just about sufficient time to leave. We've tried negotiating, but they just want to knock it down and build double the amount of houses. Same old story. Thank you so much. We are clutching at straws here. I mean, my head's reeling. You Mm -hmm. hear this every day. You look like your head's about to fall off. Well, part of that is because you said it's a quick fire round. I'm so sorry, That's not a quick fire question. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Um, There are a couple of things about that that concern me. Where you've got an expired ajari, your, your ajari is your security of tenure that allows you to stay there. <clears throat> so without an ajari, it makes me a little bit nervous, even where you've paid. Um, there is a prospect that you could be evicted, but you would be entitled to recover that money that was outstanding. That said, um, you know, with this case, they did the offer and deposit system or process at the RDC. That should get them the an Ajari certificate, so they should be relatively solid. Even and though the landlord is not willing to... How involved does he need to be in this Ajari process? Well, if you've got an Ajari, the RDC can force it through from right. one side. Okay. So if you have an Ajari certificate, you're golden, you're, you're golden to an extent. Um, and then we have to go through the proper eviction process, which is 12-month notice, the RDC. You know, it sounds like the RDC and the courts aren't talking the way they should, um, but again, you know, that's Probably one that needs looking at okay. and a, a bit of proper review. I might pass on your details, Scott. Please okay. Do. Message here saying if you're an owner and planning to upgrade your apartment or make it short term rental after one year, can I just add a note on the contract at the time of the tenant renewing? That sounds like an attempt to evict a tenant, get a tenant out. The only way you can evict a tenant is by through the 12-month notice process. Even if you add something in your lease, it's not going to change it. So at the time of renewing, you can separately give the eviction notice through the correct correct channels? Yes, okay. uh, but don't do it on the same day. Um, the judges have said they don't like seeing that. That might have changed now. They might have relaxed a little, but 
here's your new lease and here's your eviction notice mm. for personal purposes or because I'm selling it smacks a little bit of... A bit off. Yeah. Okay. Um, my jar is expired, says Anonymous. I've got 10,000 dirhams outstanding rent from previous year. I've offered to pay the outstanding amount and renew my tenancy agreement, but the landlord is not willing. Is there anything I can do in case of eviction from the landlord? How long will this take through the court procedure? Well, exactly like the previous um, listener, get into the RDC, do the offer and deposit system. You give four checks, a standard form contract, and the chances are, or you've got a good chance of them being renewed. Mm-hmm. You pay any outstanding rents, and you should be relatively good there. Um, if the landlord goes through the eviction process, well, one, he has to have a 12 month notice, but two, if we assume he's already done that, Getting into the RDC and going through the eviction process is always going to take weeks, if not months. Scott Hutton, thank you so, so much for your time. Absolute pleasure as ever. You speak, you explain things so clearly, honestly. A, a genuine thank you. And we've had loads of thanks on, on uh, 4001 as well. Where can we find you if we couldn't get you a message or anyone wants to seek a bit more involved advice one-on-one? Yep, please check us out, uh, blkpartners.com. Um, all our details are on there. Feel free to contact me, scott.hutton at blkpartners.com. Drop me an email. There you go. Uh, happy to help. Dubai Eye 103.8 presents an array of independent expert opinions and does not advise one particular view. Always seek independent legal advice which considers your own personal circumstances. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.